In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I talked to Leslie Cohenwine and Raphael Conda about designing new features at Netlify. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 124. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Full Stack Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Wadden, and today it's my pleasure to be speaking with Leslie Conwine and Rafa Conda of Netlify, who both uh, work on sort of the user interface at Netlify. So um, for anyone who isn't familiar with either of you, do you mind introducing yourselves? Maybe Leslie, start first? Sure. Hey, everyone. I'm Leslie Conwine. I am a front-end engineer at Netlify. Sort of came uh, came to development through agency work. So previously, I was working on marketing, marketing stuff for all kinds of fun clients uh, in New York City, and now based in Dallas, Texas, and uh, work on all things sort of UX at Netlify. Awesome. What about you, Rafa? So, like, yeah, like I said, Rafa, I go by Rafa. Uh, I am technically now the principal designer at Netlify, and I, I was a Early hire joined a while ago, and I've been working mainly on the app, but also marketing stuff. And before Netlify, I was doing some indie things, building games and sites, I guess. So, yeah, the reason I wanted to have you both on uh, the show today was to sort of talk um, a bit about what it looks like to sort of build new UI features uh, at Netlify and how sort of the team collaborates and what the design process and the implementation process sort of looks like. Um, I had Matt on the show a couple weeks ago talking about sort of sort of the architecture of the React SPA and getting deep into some of like those sort of technical details. Um, And I'm sort of curious to talk to you guys for the same reason, which is basically just that I find the Netlify dashboard experience to just be one of the absolute most delightful apps I get to interact with on a day-to-day basis. Um, So you're both definitely doing awesome work there. And I think there's a lot that uh, we can learn from how you build things. Thank you. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. (laughs) (laughs) So, so maybe the first thing I I guess that I'd be interested to um, learn more about is um, Leslie, you identify as a front end engineer at, at Netlify and Rafa, you focus more on design, but how, much would you say your skills like sort of cross over like Leslie do you feel like you have really good design chops too and Rafa do you do any like programming and stuff in Netlify too or are you mostly working in design tools and Leslie are you mostly just implementing the designs that are like kind of built or sorry designed by the designers um so maybe Leslie you can answer first yeah so you know design was actually kind of what led me into development so I definitely have like a a personal passion for the design Mm -hmm. side of things uh, but I will say I spend most of my time in code for sure um, it, on our React app primarily, and that's really where I do most of my work. However, um, I'm no stranger to Sketch and Abstract and some of the design tools we use. And what I would say is that we, well, we kind of work in our own tools. We do a lot of collaboration and have a lot of kind of day-to-day touch points with each other um, to to be talking throughout the entire life cycle. There's not like a handoff where design gets you know given to me to be implemented it's like a constant conversation yeah awesome makes a lot of sense rafa are you uh do you consider yourself to be a a programmer too or do you stick mostly to sort of the design side of things i don't i don't i don't call myself a programmer but i know how to code Mm -hmm. uh and especially for side projects of mine i usually code um all the things but and netlify uh, thank God, we, I don't code anymore. Like I used to, <laughs> early days, I used to do some light front end work, um, but 
today, even I might play around with some like code pen or something quick, quickly. Um, I write the code for it, but then I don't want to push code directly to Netlify. Sometimes I do, but that's like there's no need. There's way more talented <laughs> front end developers. Um, although we don't, so Leslie and the you know the front end engineering team, they don't really do a lot of design work in in the sense of like in in, in design tools, and also designers are not really touching the code, but we are all talking about the same thing. So we don't go over the details, how we actually design mockups or how we write the code, but we are present in all of them in, in the conversation about what we are building, right? Yeah. So yeah, we overlap a bit in there. Yeah, awesome. That makes a lot of sense. So I think maybe something that would be interesting to sort of walk through would just be um, taking maybe like an example of a recent um, feature or something that you've built and, and shipped at Netlify and maybe telling a bit of the story as to how it got started and, and how much back and forth there was and how the team collaborates and, and, and what it looks like to actually ship something. So we talked a little bit about this um, ahead of time. And I know like one of the features that uh, recently was kind of deployed in Netlify that I know everyone in Netlify is really excited about is uh, the new Netlify analytics feature. So um, what do you think about kind of walking through that story? That'd be great. Yeah. Um, analytics is our server-side analytics dashboard. Uh, you can activate it for any site that's on Netlify. I believe it's $9 a month per site. Um, pretty cool. We, When we sort of were concepting this, uh, one of the things that I found really uh, exciting was that front-end was really sort of a part of the design from the beginning. So the designer who was working on this um, sort of kicked it off with his own research. So he spent a lot of time kind of brainstorming, doing some uh, not, not so much competitor analysis, but looking at, at existing analytics dashboards, uh, collecting sort of uh, visual UI uh, examples of, of analytics, um, and did uh, some deeper analysis, right? How did others solve some of the problems that we're trying to, uh, also trying to solve? But how does that also differ from our needs? Um, you know, analytics is awesome, but it's still sort of at the very beginning of its uh, life cycle as a product. So it was also, you know, uh, something like Google Analytics is a lot deeper than than maybe uh, what we were going to do. So there was actually some complexity in the existing tools that we didn't necessarily need to need to copy over. Um, and one of the things that that, that designer and I really uh, did together was writing user stories about how people were actually going to use the feature. So that was something we, we kind of started from the get-go. Ralph, I don't know if you have anything to add. No. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess what I'm curious about is like, what did it look like to like first kick off the feature from the very beginning? So you mentioned that, you know, one of the first steps was kind of just sort of taking stock of the landscape and seeing, you know, what sorts of things are people doing? Um, Did you have sort of a list of goals or anything like ahead of time? Like what are the problems that we're trying to solve by introducing this analytics feature? Yeah, for sure. Uh, Frances Berryman, I have to give her a shout out, um, who's our head of product design and UX. And she sort of helped concept the bigger picture of what are the stats that we want to show in the dashboard? What's what's feasible technically from our platform team to be able to implement? Um, and then sort of figuring out how deep into that we were going. So we had pretty specific uh, ideas about what uh, what we were showing, uh, 30 days of data in particular, at least to, to start off. Um, and then from there, it was pretty open-ended, right? So we had to figure out what's the best way to display this data, what what type of chart or type of visualization makes the most sense, um, and and then go down that whole, whole pathway. So what did it look like for that, um, 
I guess you could sort of call it a list of requirements to be like presented to the team. Um, did Francis present that in any sort of like visual way or was it just more like, you know, here's what we think is important. And then someone on the visual design team sort of takes a stab at sort of trying to figure out like what it would look like to present that information or, or how does that sort of work? Well, I think I can answer this. Uh, usually like when we are presented with new features or new projects that we're working on, it, usually it doesn't come out of the blue. Like we as a team, we are aware of what's in a roadmap and we're kind of, we're all aligned and we know what we, we're going to build. But yeah, it starts with a, just a brief. What exactly are we trying to do? Uh, why, how does that fit in our own, you know, in our whole product roadmap and strategy? Um, but then we try, especially in the beginning, we try to be a bit um, just free with what we want to do. We don't, we don't want to impose too many, um, you know, uh, limitations in the beginning, although we'll get there because eventually you want to ship, right? Sure. So there's some uh, freedom to also go back and forth and also challenge a little bit some of the some of the brief as well. But like I said, we at the end of the day, we need to ship. So eventually we close that. We just try to fix the problem or whatever we're trying to ship, design the feature. Um, and this, uh, right at the beginning, we have a kickoff with everyone involved. Um, so that will be the design team and the, front end team and the back end team and the and someone from support always. Um, so there's everyone is aware, everyone has a voice and especially in the beginning of a project, everyone's talking. It's a very collaborative process. Got it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. So so I guess like digging into sort of the actual workflow and, and implementation of this thing, does when you're building a new feature like this, does it get like fully designed in a tool like Figma or Sketch or something before like the first JSX is written or whatever for like the React components or or does it sort of like get iterated on like in tandem like Leslie when you started like actually writing the code for this sort of thing like how fleshed out did it feel like the feature was from like a UI perspective? Yeah, so sometimes it differs depending on kind of what the product is. Uh, for analytics in particular, we had pretty solid mocks before we started to get too deep into implementation and a reason for that was that uh, we sort of had to prioritize uh, what it was we needed in the UI in order to be able to choose some of the technical uh, decisions that we were making, right? So uh, with analytics, we needed some sort of charting library. Uh, we could have written things ourselves. We could have done it all in SVG. We talked about D3, right? There are all of these options kind of technically as to how we wanted to go about implementing. We also had a, a deadline and we wanted to get this into people's hands more quickly. We wanted uh, as many engineers on the team as possible to be able to contribute to the feature. And that means people who may not have deep S, you know, SVG knowledge, um, even though everyone on our team is very, very smart. Um, so you know, all of those things kind of went into this particular feature. So it made sense to sort of have that UI uh, design nailed down a little bit more before making those decisions. Once I had uh, those designs, I spent some time prototyping a couple of different versions with different charting libraries to sort of figure out what was going to work best for uh, for the design. Cool. So um, I think that's actually a, an interesting point, something that I, I've wondered a lot about um, teams like the team at Netlify. Um, as someone who like works on personal projects and open source and stuff, you see like there's all these great libraries out there for solving all these different problems. But most of the time, these libraries come with a lot of like baked in sort of UI opinions. And when I look at a product like Netlify or like Stripe or any any of these companies that people sort of look at as being like really well designed, like sort of professional commercial stuff, you never really see any trace of like, oh, they used that like material UI drop down for that or whatever. Now, everything always feels like very custom because you want it to sort of feel like it's part of 
your like visual identity. Um, so what sort of considerations went into choosing a charting library to make sure that you were going to be able to sort of deliver the, ex- the sort of branded Netlify experience that you wanted to be able to deliver? Yeah, it's hard when it's libraries, right? Because there are trade-offs no matter what. Uh, There's always going to be something you maybe can't implement the way that you envision it or the way the designer wants it. Uh, But what we really did is after writing those user stories, we sort of scoped out um, a list of priorities. So like what was most important to us primarily was that we had the chart types that we wanted, right? We needed uh, area charts. We wanted to have geographic maps for uh, the future. We had kind of uh, ideas of what we needed immediately and then things we would like to see later on. Um, And then we had specific pieces of the UI as well that we wanted to be able to customize. So because we had these great designs already, it was sort of like we knew generally what we wanted the the visuals to look like. And we could then sort of make some of the decisions around the technology we chose based on the ease of customizing those parts of the design. Because again, the design is is an important part of a feature like this. Uh, People aren't going to want to use it if, um, you know, if it doesn't if it doesn't communicate what it, uh, what it's meant to. Yeah. So do you mind talking, um, a, a little bit about like the solution that you ended up, uh, choosing and what some of the benefits were of that particular library for your use case? Sure. Um, so we ended up settling on high charts. Uh, one of the reasons that high charts, uh, kind of rose to the top, we had a huge kind of comparison study that I did. So I went through a bunch of really popular libraries. I looked at victory charts and recharts and uh, D3, and I, there's a whole long list. Um, and I essentially took that list of features that we had prioritized, and I looked through each of those libraries and sort of ranked them. Uh, and so I sort of had three like top libraries that seemed like they were going to accomplish the majority of our goals, and those are the three that I prototyped uh, with. And with high charts in particular, something that's um, important to us uh, was having it work responsively. Uh, while it's not perfect, uh, we want we we care about that. It's something we think about. Um, and so we wanted something that was going to work on, on mobile devices and sort of be something you could check theoretically as you're, you know, getting on the train, want to check out your, your site's analytics. Uh, and accessibility was another one. Again, I can't claim that, you know, we at Netlify do like a thousand percent perfect job of implementing accessibility across the board. But when, especially when we're thinking about new features, it's something that plays a pretty big role in, in some of our decision making. And charts are a difficult one when it comes to accessibility. Uh, high charts in particular had um, an access- accessibility module that allows you to really customize ARIA labels, um, add specific like helper text, um, and all that's baked in, which made it a little easier to work with. Awesome. Yeah, that's uh, that sounds like you know you made a, a good choice there do you do you use a lot of other like third-party libraries or anything in in the netlify ui or is like i know charting is like one place where it's like we really don't want to have to roll this ourselves because this is like a product in itself right um but aside from that um yeah like like i kind of mentioned before like i'm always curious to know like when when people are like kind of doing things in-house versus like reaching uh for other stuff and so if, if you are using anything else, I'd be curious to know. And if you're not, um, I'd love to know like what some of the reasons why are like, why do you feel it's important to sort of build things yourself instead of pulling in something else? Like I said, it's always a trade-off. Uh, I would say that in general, we try not to pull in too many libraries, right? Um, for, for most things, and I think Rafa can talk to this a little bit as well, when we're designing, we try and kind of keep, keep things as simple as possible and not introduce too many new UI patterns. Um, first of all, it makes for like a cleaner UI and it's a little less confusing for the user, um, all of that good stuff. But when it comes to making some of those technical decisions, I think it really is this process of weighing 
first of all, defining what it is you're trying to implement so that you have a very clear idea of why you might choose a library versus rolling your own. Um, and you have to be very aware going into it what the trade-offs are. Um, I'm not going to say that forever. We're uh, definitely going to stick with high charts forever in the analytics product. I don't know what the future of this product is going to necessarily look like in two years, right? So um, I can't say that someone might not come in and, or even me rewrite it in uh, another library or, or straight But for right now, it met our, uh, our qualifications for what we were looking for. Awesome. Cool. So I think um, something else that would be interesting uh, to get into in general is, I guess, like digging a bit more into what the um, what the workflow looks like to actually like implement something to take something from like design to implementation. One of the qu- questions or one of the challenges that I've run into myself um, as a front end developer working with designs coming from a designer is a lot of the time I'll get a design handed to me and there'll be lots of like little I don't want to call them like inconsistencies, but like a lot of very like hyper specific values that appear like, well, there's like 11 pixels of margin here and like 17 pixels Mm -hmm. of margin there. And, and I'm usually trying to like normalize things to make like my job easier so that I don't have to like measure all these specific things. And I've, I've worked with some designers where that is like something that happens a lot. And I either have to choose to sort of tweak the design to make things easier to build or do what's necessary to get things looking pixel perfect. But then I've also worked um, on projects with other designers where things are a lot more systematic, where like it seems like they're very deliberately using constrained sets of values for things like that and that they're working with like a very sort of established um, design system. Um, so I'd be curious to know about like how design systems uh, sort of are included in like the design and implementation process at um, Netlify and sort of like how consistent things generally are like when you design something are you sort of expecting that the developers are going to end up making things a pixel or two different here and there and sort of like snap it to whatever the system is and sort of leaving that up to them or are you expecting people to do whatever it takes to get things looking perfect um what does that sort of like workflow look like what are the deliverables sort of look like and what's the process generally like uh i think we all every designer in our design team values consistency and simplicity and not having you know a bunch of different values that kind of look the same but are not um and i don't want to speak for the designers you mentioned uh but like probably some of those inconsistencies they just missed it because in a design tool it's way harder to keep every padding like well the padding of this button will always be eight pixels or whatever it's harder to keep that uh, consistent design tooling where you probably have like arrow key and you know manually place elements and, and set the constraints and stuff. Uh, and that stuff is just way easier uh, in code to do. Yeah, because the computer just variables kind of does it for you. Yeah, yeah, it's almost hard to mess up in creating consistencies because everything is just a variable. So uh, at Netlify, we we definitely see every mockup that we do, either in Sketch and Abstract or in Figma. Uh, we go through all the tools, <laughs> but uh, those mockups, we see them as it's like a, a middle point until you actually make the real thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we don't see that as like the truth, like the final version has to look pixel perfect to this freaking PNG because it is just a picture. This is like this is an idea of what we want to do. It's not real. Um, you don't have a lot of designers, listeners. I hope. Um, but so, <laughs> <laughs> but like. So first, first of all, the, the engineers—they are present. They see our mockups. They see our iterations. We held that we we have this uh, almost daily 
meeting that we call Design Mustard um, because it came after Product Ketchup. It's a thing, but um, and so we we just we just ask for feedback. We uh, designers ask for feedback. Sometimes it's a front end developer that comes with a problem, like a design problem. We all try to fix it and address it in that call. Um, but so it it does happen that our colors and our inconsistency um, and like paddings and stuff in our sketch files that we just hope that the, the front end engineers will catch it and address it, make it all, yeah. you know, consistent. I think that's, I think that's a good point because I think what a lot of front end developers do, and I've been guilty of this in the past too, is trying too hard to match a design exactly when a lot of the time, the things that are hard to get perfect are like you said, things that like the designer missed, or yeah. if you ask them, they'd be like, no, 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 like that should be 16 pixels, like not, not 15 pixels, just do it the easy way. I meant for it to be that way, but because it's a design tool, it's very easy for things to just get nudged around by a pixel in the wrong direction and, and not really be like super, uh, super visible. So you mentioned that you use a lot of different tools at, um, Netlify. Is there, what, what would you say is like the tool that most UI design tends to happen in, or is it really just every designer kind of uses whatever they like the most? Uh, today, in our app, since that's what we're focusing on today, uh, we, we use abstract and sketch, a combo. Um, for a lot of reasons, we're, we're not like, I don't, I'm not going to try to defend sketch and abstract. It's a tool that works for us, but also, you know, Figma and all of them, they're all framer. They're all great in their own way. It just so happens that this is what we've been using and kind of works. So, um, yeah, we don't care too much about it. I've never used abstract before. Abstract, I'm looking at it right now. It doesn't look like it's a design tool itself. It looks like it's just something for helping manage the design process. Is that right? It's a, it's a version control and just file management layer on top of Sketch. Got it. So you do commit your work and you create branches uh, and all of this. You, know, you, you actually don't use a file system to open files and try to sync them and all. You do get version control. You do get uh, just a history of what people are doing. You can also compare uh, different commits, and you can see the evolution on a, a design um, like mockups. And and also, it just it just brings a lot more visibility to what designers are doing because you can just go and abstract, and everyone in the team um, can 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 see what we're doing. So you can track our well. That, that now sounded creepy, but people can see what we're working on. <laughs> Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Cloudinary. So if I had to describe Cloudinary myself, it's basically just the best way to store and serve images that I've ever seen. In the past, I used to use generic storage services like Amazon S3 to store and serve images, uh, but after switching to Cloudinary, I genuinely cannot believe I ever did this stuff any other way. Uh, so here's one example of how Cloudinary has made my life easier. Uh, so you probably know that typically images are the heaviest resource resource your users have to download when they visit your site, right? Usually way more than your JavaScript or CSS. So in the past, I would spend a lot of time tweaking settings and tools like Image Alpha and Image Optim to try and optimize my image files so they weren't as large. Uh, with Cloudinary, I can just upload the full resolution file without even really thinking about it. And then by just adding a parameter to the image URL that I get back, uh, when I go to serve it on my site, Cloudinary will automatically optimize that image as best as it can, usually resulting in file sizes that are 
are actually lower than what I was seeing when trying to optimize the images by hand. Uh, this is even more useful for like user uploaded images because instead of trying to do some fancy automatic image optimization in a background job on my own server or something, I can just send those images directly to Cloudinary from the browser, I request the optimized version back by adding that URL parameter, and bam, I've got an optimized image at a really small file size. Uh, so there's an enormous amount of other cool stuff that you can do through the URL-based API. That's really just scratching the surface, but you can do stuff like request images at different sizes so you can serve smaller images on mobile devices so you're not wasting bandwidth. Uh, you can crop images to different dimensions. You can crop images using face detection, so just crop to the faces in an image. Uh, you can automatically add watermarks or text overlays or tons of different effects and stuff like that. It's a seriously impressive service. So Cloudinary has an amazing free plan where you can store 300,000 images and videos. Yeah, did I mention you can do all this crazy stuff, not just with images, but also with videos too. Uh, you get 10 gigabytes of storage and 20 gigabytes of a monthly bandwidth on this free plan. Uh, so if you're not already using them, definitely head over to cloudinary.com and check it out. It really is one of my absolute favorite services that I use on my own projects. Thanks a ton to Cloudinary for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. So um, on, sort of on the topic of like trying to design with a system and like keep things consistent, um, with everyone working in Sketch, what sorts of things um, have you sort of standardized and how do you try to like enforce that consistently like for example i'm sure you you likely have like a netlify color palette right where is that sort of thing stored so that everyone's always like making sure that they're working with like the same set of colors and what other like pieces of the design system has sort of been codified in that way like do you have standard sets of padding and margin or corner radiuses that you use or, or shadows and so i'm just curious to know like as much as you can tell me about everything that's sort of been standardized and what sort of the process was that went into sort of deciding what is important to be consistent and what maybe can sort of be ad hoc when necessary. Before when it was just me, you know, one or two designers in the team, it was really simple and we just didn't care about it. Like if I'm designing a feature like analytics or whatever, and in that process, I also tweak the color of the button or whatever, because I'm just experimenting. I'm just, looking for something. Um, I just trust that the engineers like will just not look at it. Like I see that you're tweaking the design or the border radius of this one button, but like we're pretty upfront. Like don't focus on that, just focus on the overall layout and stuff that we're working on. But of course that doesn't scale because then <laughs> once you're a bigger team and every designer does its own thing its own thing, it's just it's chaos. So we are in the process of trying to make that way more consistent and better. Uh, not only in our own design tools, but also try to keep that in sync with what's in production and code. That's something we are actively working on. Um, of course, this this whole thing is, like I mentioned before, it's way easier to do in code. Well, these are the you know border radius variables. There's maybe two, and that's it. As long as you keep using variables, we're we're going to be okay. Um, in Sketch, you can you can you can do that with just symbols, and and we do we have a lot of text layers and. A lot of symbols I would try to reuse, but also they keep changing. So, for example, we use Sketch, and on the new beta of the new version for Sketch, they finally introduced like uh, adaptive layout. So, if you have a button, you can, the button can dynamically change the width depending on the label inside. Stuff like that. We've been asking for that for so long, but that's that's going to mean that after we ship that update, we're going to have to go back and try to update every single component symbol and stuff. And it's just it's just a lot of work, uh, and it's work that you don't really see the benefit because 
our customers, our you know, Netlify users, they're not going to see a difference if we update a sketch symbol uh, in our own tool. So sometimes it's hard to spend a lot of time on that. So if it does require a lot of time and effort and resources, we just try to put it off and, well, it's just the design thing. It's just, again, like I said, it's not the real thing, so let's focus. We only care if it's what's in code, what's live. That's what's important, and that's what we should make because sure. Because of that, we also do a lot of back and forth, right? So if I end up with a design, uh, obviously, if it's like two pixels off of our, you know, the margin variable that I think it should be using, I'm going to just defer to the variable and use that and not ask. But if there's a color that seems super off or different than than something that I already have predefined in, in you know, my my CSS, then I'm going to immediately, I'm going to ask the designer about it. Um, and we're going to have that conversation because it's also our job, since the code is really the source of truth, to push back and and really fight for that con- consistency when we need it. Yeah, 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 that makes a lot of sense. It, almost all the times when they push back on like, hey, I mean, you gave me just one color and we have a very similar one. Um, there's always a welcome because again, like I said, sometimes we just missed it. Sometimes we were not aware of some of that inconsistency. So that's, yeah, we always welcome that pushback and that you eventually address it. Yeah, awesome. So with like um, your color palette, for example, this is something I'm always uh, curious about because... Um, it feels like I always need way more colors than talented designers seem to need. Uh, but how large is like the color palette at Netlify? Do you have like a, a system for it? Like I know like material design, for example, there's like, I think it's like nine or 10 shades for like every color and it's all very sort of systemized. Like um, how much of that do you do? Do you have like a, a set shade of like, these are all the grays that we use for the site. And is it the same number of shades for like each color? Yeah, uh, yes. <laughs> I actually opened up pulling up the file to check exactly how many colors. But we do have our what we call our base color, which is that dark uh blue grayish that you see in the like in the heather. Yeah. Um, that, yep. Which so is also like almost the, black sort of Yeah, it's like a it's not really black, but very close, it's like a blue with a blue tint. That is our base color. And so uh most of our text and um well everything that looks black, you know, just dark, that's it's the base color, but then we do have, uh, I believe, like maybe six shades, just different, you know, um, uh, different shades of that that base color. And so we use that for, you know, if it's like a muted text thing, or um, even on the cards, if you have, you know, striped items, that off-white thing is also based on that primary color. Color. We just have a bunch. I think six or seven shades of that primary one, um, and then we do. We have three. Like accent colors, uh, just a standard like teal. We have a red and, and yellow, and those have usually three shades each. Um, and this is all just out of necessity. Sometimes, well, if you have a, a you know a yellow button with yellow is the worst color, but <laughs> it's right in the middle. You know, if you have a, a yellow button to use black text or white text, who knows? Uh, it's always tricky to get contrast right. So sometimes we do have these other shades based on that same color. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's pretty much it. We we have a very very simple color palette, and we felt, you know, like we felt it. Sometimes we we could really use just <laughs> sure. more colors. It's so easy, but we try again not to be not to, to have the system bloated and just awesome tight as we can. Yeah, on the code side, we try and also 
um, give everything a semantic name, right? So we have all the like color variables sitting in the file, gold, seal, what, you know, whatever they're called. And then we name them semantically as well, like later on in the file, even if it's just reassigning one of those existing color variables to a more semantic name. And that helps with that consistency, right? So if we're getting a new color that's in a mock somewhere, and I don't really know how else that color might be used in the future, I ask the question, you know, I, what is this color's purpose? What is it communicating? How are we going to use it moving forward so that we aren't just throwing a random color in one on one page and not thinking? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Awesome. So like one other element I think of the design system that I'm always curious to hear about uh, what teams are doing is um, like the shadows and like elevation system. I know Netlify is you know, it's got this kind of like modern aesthetic where it's like kind of flat, but everything still kind of sort of has like a little bit of elevation and stuff. How many different like shadows are you using throughout the UI? Are you always trying to be consistent with that? We are. I think we have two and that's pretty much it. One thing that we didn't touch uh, is also we have this, I don't know what to call it, like this unit thing. We just follow a eight pixel uh, grid or eight point grid, I believe. So every element, so it's a mix of an eight-point grid system and um, in a system based on the golden ratio. So we just try, well, effectively multiply a unit by the golden ratio, and then you just pick the closest value mm-hmm. inside that grid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, we expand this as well, and honestly, no one will ever care or notice, and it doesn't really matter. But also things like you mentioned drop shadows, like the, just the blur and stuff is also based on that you know, uh, or even the opacity of the shadow, it's probably either eight or 16. Um, so we try to, you know, keep that consistency across, even though it, sometimes you're comparing apples to oranges, but still numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find that for me personally, I find like with things like that, um, a lot of the time, uh, kind of like you kind of alluded to briefly, like it, it almost like doesn't really matter. Like it, that it doesn't really contribute to any sort of like visual harmony that like you're using an, an eight step opacity and like an eight pixel grid or whatever. But I find it does, um, it does like avoid having to make these like really annoying decisions, like trying to decide, Oh, am I using a 15 opacity or a 16 opacity? Like having some sort of guideline where you're just like always rounding to the nearest, whatever, um, helps me at least like waste way less time, like fine tuning something that just literally doesn't matter at all. Is that, is that, do you find that to be an important benefit? Totally, totally. And maybe it's because I also like have that programmer's mentality a little bit if I want to keep things very simple and not random because mm-hmm. I don't do well with random stuff. And if it is a random value, like even a color value, that just makes me question it forever. Like, but why? But what, what about it? Does it? Because sometimes I just try to eyeball it, right? What feels and looks right. Yeah. Um, one, one interesting example that I, I think we ship this little thing, but usually our, our border radius was either um, eight or, or four, which again, following that, that grid. Yep. So every like, you know, bigger element was, so all the cards and stuff would go, um, would have an eight pixel border radius and every small element, like a button would have four. Uh, but then was my, my fellow designer, he, uh, Ramon, he suggested that all the inner uh, elements, so stuff that is inside a card in this example, would have a six pixel border radius because then if you try this is really hard to communicate on the podcast because people it's can't like see a, like a circle in a circle and you need like the radiuses to feel like as you yeah, like like kind of expand they would yeah the inner radius of an eight pixel border radius card let's say it's actually six pixels it creates that harmony that it doesn't 
it's not harmonious in code if you're if you're reading it, right? But visually, that just works way much better. Yeah. That is one of the exceptions. Like sometimes also, because I don't want to be all preaching for, you know. <laughs> um, so sometimes it does going outside of these just rules can create something pleasing, but those, I, for me at least, they have to be the exceptions. Also, it makes it way more special because yeah. now I'm talking on a podcast. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. So, um, Leslie, maybe uh, you can speak to sort of how a lot of these ideas that Rafa has been talking about with like trying to enforce like consistency in the design and, and stuff, how that translates into actual code in terms of like technical choices and stuff. You mentioned, um, you know, this the fact that you have like all the colors as like uh, variables in like your CSS. I'm curious to know, I guess, like before we even get into that, like what the sort of technical stack looks like at Netlify for implementing design. I know with React, there's like about a hundred billion ways that you can do um, CSS. So how are you uh, doing CSS at Netlify? Yeah, so right now, obviously React Frontend, um, we're using post-CSS for our styling. Um, so no CSS and JS yet, um, at least not not, uh, not right now. Uh, and we, you know, the app has been around for a little while as well. So there's always a little bit of cleanup that needs to happen. It's not, uh, it's never a perfect world when you're working on something and shipping all the time. Uh, but we, you know, um, generally sort of uh, follow BEM uh, methodology. So that's something that we've sort of committed to lately. I can't say that everything in the app is, is named that way. Uh, but we have some conventions we try to follow around that. Awesome. So with PostCSS, um what PostCSS plugins are you using as like part of your uh, chain? Like I know, for example, there's like plugins for uh, sort of giving you like the nesting features that people sort of miss from SAS and stuff like that. Are you using those sorts of plugins to sort of give you a, be- a better authoring experience than you'd get with, with just vanilla CSS? I'm checking out our package.json right now just to, to confirm which ones we're using. Uh, we do use nested, uh, PostCSS nested. We use, um, let's see here, what else is exciting? We have post-CSS each, but it's we don't use each's very much. Um, we have kind of like two use cases in the, in the code base where we have that. Um, and I would actually say that most of our post-CSS plugins are, pr- we try and keep it on the, uh, on the smaller side yeah. and only add something if we're really, really going to use it um, you know, throughout the, the code base. So for the most part, you're basically just writing like vanilla CSS with nesting. For the most part, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And then for like um, variables, are you just using like like native, like regular CSS custom properties, I guess they're called? Yes. Awesome. Custom properties. You got it. And do you, um, do you have like, do you like polyfill that stuff for older browsers or do you only worry, like, I guess, general question, what browsers do you even worry about supporting um, with the Netlify UI? Yeah. So because of our audience, it's typically other developers uh, and we do keep an eye on kind of what browsers people are using. We are seeing a lot more uh, mobile usage. So that's something I think that we're considering and starting to think about a little bit more uh, explicitly. Uh, Generally, we support like the most modern versions of the major browsers. I can't say that we necessarily test a bunch in Edge or IE 11. uh, But certainly, you know, Firefox, Safari, Chrome, we're we're checking all the time. Yeah, awesome. Supporting IE 11 is like 
the worst thing ever. It's so funny that I eleven like when it when it came out, everyone was like, "Oh, it's so great!" And but you know, of course, over time we get CSS Grid, and now I eleven has this horrible implementation of CSS Grid, and uh, it's it's just a nightmare. Do do you use like super hyper like bleeding edge CSS features like that? And LFI, like, do you use CSS Grid for stuff? Yeah, we do. Um, it was a relatively recent change that we sort of decided that we were comfortable moving forward with that. But because we support mostly modern browsers, we can we can use all the fun stuff. Awesome. What have you found some of the benefits of that to be? I haven't like fully, I've tinkered with CSS Grid, but I've found that for most of the things that I need to build, I can build them in Flexbox without any real trouble. So I figure uh, I might as well just do it in Flexbox because I know like the browser support is a little bit better. Um, but authoring stuff in CSS Grid, what have you found like some of the workflow benefits and stuff to be? Definitely with Grid specifically, it's the fact that you don't necessarily have to have media queries to control responsive layouts. I think that's what makes Grid feel so like special and amazing that you can sort of define everything once and it's going to auto adjust to fit whatever, you know, however much space there is in, in your UI uh, in, on your device. Uh, that's probably been the most fun. Um, but, you know, I know the old days, uh, you know, when I was working in the agencies, uh, building out a, a complete feature with Grid and then realizing that it didn't work at all. And IE11 struggling with that implementation and finally tearing the whole thing out and rewriting everything in Flexbox, right? So I definitely, I, I know that pain uh, and it's fun to now kind of be able to, to toy with uh the, the cutting the, edge the cool stuff yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome yeah i have to play the css grid more i didn't realize that you could do stuff like what you mentioned is is that what you use like some of that like min max stuff and fancy stuff like that for yeah exactly yeah what is there an is there a good example of like a, a piece of like the netlify ui that myself and listeners might want to like go poke at to sort of uh uh, see some of the cool things that you're doing with CSS Grid. We, uh, yeah, I'm I'm double checking right now to make sure that I'm I'm telling you something that's accurate. <laughs> to change. We're not doing anything super crazy. You know, our layouts are pretty standard, kind of kind of straightforward. And some of that is because it's it's you know uh, a SaaS, right? So you want it, to, you know, software as a service. You want it to be you know usable, not like let's wow you with the coolest layout. Um, I believe we're using. We, we had designed a version of the analytics uh, dashboard actually with grid. I think we have since pulled that out. Uh, we sort of have a card layout that's, you know, cards within a grid. And so at some point we were playing with grid and kind of trying to figure out, okay, if uh, we don't have a card down here, can we make the final card, you know, span however many columns we want in the grid. Um, but I think we sort of have simplified since then. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is DigitalOcean. So DigitalOcean is a simple, developer-friendly cloud platform optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. Uh, I've personally been a customer of DigitalOcean for about five years, and I use them to host all of my server-side projects, like my custom course platform, for example, which is built with Laravel. A lot of the guests that I've had on the show in the past are DigitalOcean customers as well. Uh, for example, Taylor Otwell, the creator of Laravel, he uses DigitalOcean to host Envoyer and Laravel Forge, and Jeffrey Way actually uses DigitalOcean to host Laracast as well. Uh, one of DigitalOcean's newest features that I'm personally really excited about is managed databases, uh, which lets you spin up a completely managed database server so you don't have to worry about anything like backups, uh, managing read-only replicas, or just general server maintenance. 
Now, DigitalOcean is already an extremely affordable service. You can spin up a server for as little as $5 a month, but they've been kind enough to offer a free $50 credit to Full Stack Radio listeners. So head over to do.co slash full stack, all one word, to claim your $50 credit. And thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. Back to the show. Um, so yeah, we talked a little bit about sort of like the CSS setup and, and how you're using, you know, just regular old CSS variables to keep track of things like common border radiuses and colors and stuff like that. Are there any um, other tools or techniques that you find yourself using um, in sort of like the front end code base, either with React or with just the CSS for um, trying to sort of stick to a consistent design system and making it easy to make the UI feel very cohesive? Yeah, I mean, we're having a lot of conversations right now about a more kind of solidified design system and what that would mean, uh, how that would look. Uh, we uh, rely a lot on Storybook, which I think Matt talked a lot about when uh, when he was on. So we tend to uh, develop in Storybook first uh, when we're creating a new component. And I think that's a really easy place because you're doing presentation only. You're not worrying about hooking anything up to an API yet. You're worried specifically about all the states of a component. Uh, and what it looks like, that's a really good, that's usually kind of where you notice if something is is not consistent, right? Um, and designers can can often see that. We'll try and put in work in progress PRs uh, so that designers can kind of take a peek if they want and, and weigh in. Awesome. Yeah, I think um, one thing that I really like about the, the Netlify UI that I've, I've always found to be pretty impressive is just how much it seems like you're able to reuse like existing UI patterns for like different purposes. Like it seems like a very minimalistic UI in a lot of ways. Like it's not like every feature is implemented with some completely reimagined approach to laying out the information. Like you have, you're very consistent with like your use of these, like, like these sort of like striped lists that Netlify uses in a lot of places and, and and stuff like that. Um, But I also know that when working on a product, things maybe don't feel the same way as they look from the outside. Like, I think I remember um, uh, Benjamin DeCock from Stripe tweeting at one point, someone tweeted at him about how how they loved how all the Stripe landing pages felt so consistent. And he was like, you think they're consistent? Really? <laughs> like, <laughs> this is like a huge problem for me. I feel like everything is crazy if we're like trying so hard to standardize things. Um, so from the outside, everything just like seems like so consistent and like well thought out in terms of like reusing things and stuff like that. Is that, has that been like a very deliberate um, thing? You want us to tell the horror stories from the inside, right? <laughs> <laughs> you think it's pretty? Um, the, the, that, so when I joined Netlify uh, and like, and Matt talked a little bit about the, those early days, um, our app was still written in Angular and it, was, it looked very different. Um, and me as like the first uh, designer trying to build features on top of this system, for lack of a better word, uh, it was kind of hard because we didn't have any pattern library or it, it was kind of tricky. So in around March 2017, uh, that's when we shipped the, well, the redesign, but it's effectively the same design you see now. Um, and that whole effort was uh, at a time just, just me and front-end engineer it in it. Uh, we were, so we were both working on it together and we had to design just this base system uh, that we could build on top of. And so it was, well, first we didn't have a lot of time. Then it was just the two of us in. We also, it's not that we're redesigning Netlify from the ground up. We just had to build a system that we could also adapt the current UI to it, right? So very simple. So just the, the, this concept of cards 
and just uh, reshuffling the navigation a little bit. And that was like the early days. And we're still building on top of that foundation. Um, and so not only on Netlify as a designer, like you, we want to simplify complexity, which is a very cliche buzzword or whatever, but, uh, you know, just web <laughs> tools for web developers, they can be pretty um, complicated or complex or just have a lot. And we try to simplify it as much as we can. Um, so we apply that same ideal to also our UI and all of the components that we have. So we are pretty conservative of introducing new components. And I think that will make for a cleaner, more consistent uh, UI, but also that brings a lot of challenges uh, because like today we don't have tabs, we don't have toggle switches, we don't have a lot of just very common UI elements that you kind of rely on. Um, so if we're, if we're trying to introduce a toggle switch, which was something we actually tried to at one point, um, it's like, well, this was designed mainly for touch touch interfaces, touch screens. Um, like we do have radio buttons, I guess. We even have checkboxes. Can we just, instead of a toggle switch, have a button that says turn on and that will switch to turn off? That's effectively the same thing. So we try to be very conservative about introducing new patterns. Um, because then it's one more thing to maintain and it's one more thing to keep consistent and all that. So uh, I think, like, I'm glad that you noticed that. <laughs> it's good, but also it, it makes for a very challenging thing to also design with. Yeah, I think that that I could definitely understand why that would be challenging. Like, can you think of an example maybe of like a, a, a feature that people have seen in Netlify where maybe you, you wish you had um, the tools to implement it in a different way? initially at least and then had to figure out how can we fit this into sort of like the components that we already have because we want to be very conservative about introducing um new stuff i know like one example actually of, of kind of the opposite at least from to my eyes anyways is like the split testing feature yes. i think this is like the only place that has like these sort of like sliders um mm -hmm. in the netlify ui so was was it a was it a hard decision to decide to like introduce this sort of new UI? Did you did you try to figure out how can we do this without sort of like introducing um, new components, or was it just kind of obvious like we need to come up with something different to make this uh, so a nice that, experience? That product is is it's a, it's an outlier in, in a lot of different ways. It's it's one of my favorite features, honestly, and that was a that was a feature that we had. We were planning for a long time, and it was like a thing that it was not top priority at any moment, but it's something we really want to build and put together. And we had the API kind of ready because uh, we were using some of it internally as well. Um, and then I did try; to, I did come up with different mocks and different ideas to how to do this. But that was the one feature that I'm like, as a user, and also not as a very technical user, right? Um, I'm like, well, if we want to make a very simple split testing, just have two sliders and you just slide the traffic from one branch to another. And that was like as simple as I could make it in my head. So, of course, I did design that. Um, but then also, we didn't have sliders, like you said, or it could be just too simple because, you know, um, the feature is still simple and, and the product is still in beta. Um, but again, if you base the whole UI just on based on two sliders, I don't know how much if you want to introduce complexity or new features to that product and also can become a bit tricky. But but that was the one feature that I'm like, that idea, the just the basic two sliders was there from the beginning. And it was the one thing that we did open exceptions to the process a little bit. So actually those sliders kind of inferred 
the API design and of course for the front end as well. And but those sliders are actually pretty complex. Like we have the locking mechanism, which you know, if you lock, if you have three if three branches, you lock one and you move the slider on the second one. What happens to the third one? You know, it's, anyway, it's it looks simple. <laughs> I guess in you know behind the scenes, it's not that simple, but still, still, still simple. Yeah, I think um, it's sort of funny how some of the uh, some of the most challenging sort of like product design decisions end up being like the ones that are the easiest to completely not even notice as an end user a lot of the time like and unless someone points out to you like can you imagine what it must have been like to like to make this decision and make it work this way you know a lot of time it's just when you make something that feels intuitive it feels like it must have been easy because it ended up being intuitive but that's almost never the case when the actual product design process yeah Yeah. don't make users think that's the ultimate goal if they don't even need to think about Mm -hmm. what they're doing Awesome. Well, um, I want to be respectful of your time because we've been going for for about an hour now. So I think maybe now would be a good time to start wrapping up. But I do want to give you sort of like a last uh, chance to to talk about anything that maybe you think that we missed that uh, are important sort of traits or characteristics of the design process at Netlify or anything anything that you wanted to to point people to 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 learn more or any particular stuff that you're excited about. Um, so Leslie, is there is there anything uh, else that you wanted to mention before we start wrapping up? It's a big question. I know. Uh, there's so many things. Uh, anything you want. Yeah. Just is there anything that you feel like you didn't get to say? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's uh, a little bit unique about Netlify is that front-end engineers in particular are a pretty big uh, user base of Netlify. And so as sort of someone who's building a UI for a lot of other people who do very similar work to what I'm doing, um, we sort of all end up becoming UX designers, right? So front-end engineers are a part of that. Um, you know, our designers, our documentation team, um, really anyone who's on the team has a say in sort of how, how the UX of, of Netlify works, how it comes about. Uh, and a, sort of a unique part of that is sitting in between design and API, right? And figuring out um, how do those two things need to balance against each other when you're building a new feature um, in terms of Sometimes, like even with analytics, I was able to sort of uh, help influence the direction of the API design and what what did I want the shape of the data to look like? How is that going to work correctly with high charts? Um, all of those were things I, I got to really kind of think about and be a part of, which was um, really fun. And so, yeah, if you can find a job where you can do all those things, it's, uh, it's a, a good time. <laughs> awesome. Uh, Raphael, anything uh, that you feel like you didn't get a chance to say that you'd like to say now? Uh no, you know, we touched on collaboration. That's that's huge here. Um, I think a designers sometimes, as a I don't, know, I don't want to stereotype, but we do. We are known for like like to stress out detail and just go the extra mile and you know think about things that users won't see or whatever. Um, and we do like to we like this we like this uh, myth this this. This thing that carry you know that, that follows designers like we are the ones who are perfectionists and whatever, but in reality, in practice, if you are working at a startup and you do have to make trade-offs and you do have to be content or okay with not hitting perfection or whatever, because at the end of the day, we have to ship and we have to move fast because there's a lot of competition and stuff. And that's definitely a lesson that I had I had to learn the I don't want to say the hard way, but I I was forced to learn this because I had to just give up some of these you know, just trying to make it perfect because it won't be and we have to move and we just iterate, you know, be okay with that. So um, I'd like to say like the, the the pyramid of, 
values that in the design team for Netlify, which again is very cliche term to use. So apologies, but so at the base, it's like, does the design does it does it do the job right? You're trying to do something, a UI. Can you do it? Second is accessible. So not only does it, can people actually do it? <laughs> it's like second place. Third place is, is it easy to understand? It's like, that would be great. Not only if people can do it, but can they do it easily? Can they really understand it? And only at the top is it, does it look good in, in brand? And or something? Mm-hmm. Is it like we mentioned the sliders on foot testing? Yeah. Sometimes we can't reach the top. It just, we don't have time and we don't have resources. So we have to be okay with just doing something that works. Uh, people can understand it and ship it, you know? Um, so that's something I just want to point out because um, it's pretty common and people don't talk about it much, I think. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think, um, you know, it's, it's funny that you say that because for me, Netlify is like one of my go-to references anytime I'm building something to see like, oh, how would someone do this awesomely? Because I feel like um, the Netlify experience is really, really, really fantastic. So I just want to thank both of you so much for, for giving me your time and, and coming on. Um, thank you. This is awesome. Yeah. What's the best place for people to sort of keep up with, with what you're working on, Leslie, and keep up with you? Yeah. So for me, Twitter is the place to be. Uh, my handle is Leslie C. Dubs. And uh, the Netlify blog as well. Uh, we Both Rafa and I have, have written some pieces for the blog, and, and sometimes we dig a little deeper into uh, how we're building things. Awesome. Where can people keep up with you, Rafa? Uh, I'm at Rafa Hari on Twitter. That's the best way to, you know, best place to see what I'm up to. Uh, like Leslie mentioned, just keep an eye on our blog. We are working, we've been teasing this a bit, so it's not any secret, but we are working on a redesign of our main navigation, which is a big one. And so we are planning to just post a lot of content and some of the behind the scenes um, that the process of doing that there you have it folks i hope you enjoyed this conversation with leslie and Raphael. if you're interested in the show notes for this episode they'll be at fullstackradio.com slash 124 thanks to cloudinary and digital ocean for sponsoring the podcast this week and we'll see you next time